Glad that you're here. If you are a visitor today, welcome. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad that you guys are able to be here today as we continue in our series, Who Do You Say I Am? Uh, this uh, essential question that Jesus posed to his disciples, but he continues to pose to us as church. Uh, and it is the central question that we must come to terms with because we as a community declare that we exist for Jesus uh, as a community or a movement of grace uh, that we might see a, a spiritual awakening uh, in our city. And so we have to be able to answer that question is, who is Jesus and what do we, what do we make of his exclusive claims and how do we understand uh, his role in our lives and is he just a teacher who lived a long time ago who gave us some good values to try to experience our life by or is he who he claimed to be or at least who the church claims that he claimed to be based upon the scriptures that we have based our lives upon which is that he is more than just a teacher that he himself is the God man he is God incarnate God come down to earth, God who has entered into the human predicament of, of brokenness and frailty, that God has actually made a way for us to be free by bringing his son into this world to live the life that we couldn't live, that caused him to die the death that we deserved, which he conquered on the cross of Calvary, death in the dominions of darkness once and for all. After three days, we are told that he rose again, that he showed himself to his followers, that after 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent his spirit, which we see on the day of Pentecost, to dwell in those that place their faith in him, hence the birth of the church and the continuation of this gospel witness, the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the resurrection and the life. This is what we hold to, but do we understand it? And so this is why we're exploring the I am statements in the Gospel of John. And so I want to just begin with a quote uh, by a man named Robert Farrar Capone. Uh, he, is a, he was an Episcopalian priest, um, passed away a few years ago, but he wrote a, a book on the parables. And I love this, this quote. He says, Jesus never meets a corpse that doesn't sit up right on spot. Consider, there's the widow of Nain's son, Luke chapter seven, there's Jairus's daughter, Luke chapter eight, and there is Lazarus himself, the story we're gonna consider today. They all rise not because Jesus does a number on them, not because he puts some magical resurrection machinery into gear, but simply because he has that effect on the dead. They rise because he is the resurrection even before he himself rises. I love that quote. It's so powerful. And what John chapter 11 does for us is it gives us the gospel in miniature. Romans chapter 6 verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. The proclamation, the I am statement that we consider today is I am the resurrection and the life. And it's not just simply the future hope of, of resurrected bodies, life after death, but it's the possibility of resurrection life now as we die with Christ daily that we might live according to the power 
of his resurrection life by the presence of his spirit in our lives. And there is so much about what faith in Christ looks like and how it releases that resurrection life into our lives in this chapter. And what we're gonna consider is that when we put our simple trust in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, repeating daily that yes of love, what we will discover in him through this story is that he is our loving friend who will not abandon us to the grave. He is our patient teacher who leads us into a deeper understanding of his life. That he himself is our wounded healer who can take our brokenness into himself and bring about forgiveness and healing, life everlasting. That he is our gentle savior whose identification with our pain is active and saving. And that he is finally our commanding king who can bring life to us every day and even raise the dead through us as we become his witness. So, beginning with our loving friend, we begin our story in John chapter 11, verses one through six. Now, it begins here. A certain man was ill, that is Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, you may be familiar with those two. They came up in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Martha is busy serving. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus worshiping. Martha gets mad that her sister is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus tells Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better place. Stop worrying. Come be with me. But here we are told that these two had a brother, and his name is Lazarus. And it says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, that is to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Jesus loved this family, this brother and his two sisters very much. And I love here, I wanna just begin here by showing Jesus as the resurrection and the life is our loving friend, that we can come to him with our brokenness, with our frailty, with our sickness. And the power that we see in this very statement, it actually gives us the basic format of the most honest and real kind of prayer there is, and that is the simple prayer of help. I think it's honestly the most accurate <laughs> and honest prayer that we can really pray every day. The real prayer that every person should be praying is, and we probably should begin every prayer, Jesus says, well, when you pray, pray like this, but he's telling, teaching us how to pray as a community of believers, but individually, the, probably the better starting place is I believe, help my unbelief. Help me, help me. In prayer, we frequently do not know what we should exactly ask, lest we presume overreach or underreach, but we can learn from their story that we may be sure that it is always enough and appropriate simply to share our deepest problem with him. Why? Because he's the resurrection and the life. And in this sense, we have before us that model of prayer and personal crisis. Lord, look, your dear friend is very sick. Jesus loves each one of you the way that he loves Lazarus. John is very particular in saying, the one whom you love is sick. Because what we are told in John chapter three, John has already established the theological groundwork. Whom does God love? He loves sinful people like you and I. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is why Augustine said they did not say come, come heal him, but only Lord behold he whom you love is ill as if to say it's enough that you know for you are not one that loves and then abandons. He is a loving friend because he is the resurrection and the life, the one who maintains our lives, keeps us alive, keeps us in his life, the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that those who put their trust in him are born again and regenerated with his life, and his life is eternal life, and he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We cannot separate life from knowing personal knowledge because Jesus has come to give us life and that life is his very presence with us, for us. It's the very essence of the Nicene Creed that God became man for us, that he died as a man for us, that he rose from the dead as a man for us and he continues to be a man for all of eternity for us. So powerful. But notice it says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It would be probably appropriate to say that this verse, it doesn't say exactly who Jesus is speaking to. I think in our minds we, we get the idea that the messengers came from Mary and Martha and they say, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And then Jesus, after they, the messengers leave, turns to his disciples and, and says, this, but I believe that this message was brought back to Mary and Martha because we will see in verse 33 that Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that this had to be, that God's glory could be revealed? And so the answer to the prayer, the answer to the request is this illness does not lead to death. Now, this is going to be shocking to them because Jesus is going to arrive four days after Lazarus died, which is Jesus is always trying to push us to the ultimate reality, which is he is the ultimate reality. And our understanding of Jesus's essence as life and life eternal, the resurrection and the life, the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, that the triune God who is the creator of all that is and cannot be confused with all that we know and what is, is behind this picture that we have here. But from the human side, it all seems very confusing. It seems like Jesus is not available, not able to help. And I can tell you right now that there are many of you here today that are experiencing that same kind of dilemma. A vision from this side of heaven can often create a misunderstanding of the very nature of God because can you imagine getting the word back from Jesus, this illness will not lead to death only to have your brother die, how they would interpret that statement. But you see, Jesus knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning because what are we told about him in Revelation itself? That he is the one who holds the keys to death and to life. And so, John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Jesus even said this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, Jesus even here is teaching us one of the most basic principles of the gospel, that real life only comes through death. That's the reality. 
He knows what he's doing. And this is why we can trust him who is the resurrection and the life as our friend. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Once again, a statement about Jesus' affection for these people. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that's a very confusing statement on the surface level. I love him so much, I'm going to let him suffer alone. I love him so much, I'm not going to go there and heal him before he dies. Once again, the mystery is revealed in this text that God does not spare those who he loves from life's difficulties, that it is actually through death that we learn more about the reality of who God is, which is resurrection cannot happen unless first we die. That's why we can't talk about the resurrection without talking about the cross. This is why we cannot talk from a gospel perspective as if the Christian life is a ladder toward greater and greater enlightenment and greater and greater levels of life. No, the deeper the experience of life is found in the deepening willingness to enter into his death and the brokenness and death of this world that we might be conduits of his love. It's an outward and forward reality. It's not an inward and upward reality. If you want to move toward Christ-likeness, you go out into his world that he came to save. And you go down into the brokenness and down to the foot of the cross so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I love this passage because the love that Jesus had for this family in this exact moment, what they don't understand is that he's going to bring the most fruit possible out of this experience. It is the essence of what Jesus says in John chapter 12. Unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I saw this perfectly experienced in all of my prayers for God to bring divine healing to my dear friend Craig, who was a part of this church. I wanted him to heal him of his cancer. But God allowed that cancer to continue until it took his life five years in. But it was through the outward man perishing that we saw the inward man revealed and the beauty of grace fully exposed to the point where it was through Craig's death that I watched his father come to faith. And I think that this is the power of the gospel and the mystery of that upside down kingdom. But the belief, as I saw the the, the physical death reality creeping in on Craig's life was an ever deepening belief that Jesus is indeed the resurrection and the life and he is a loving friend who will not abandon me to the grave. And it became a living testimony to everyone around him. And this is what this story is calling us to. This is not a passage about what we should expect uh, for those that have turned this passage into, this is God's desire every time, that any time someone dies, you can raise them from the dead. Because if that was true, then there would be no need to make TV shows like The Returned or, or Leftovers uh, because, because it would be so common that everyone actually raised from the dead. Well, first of all, that doesn't even make sense because even if God raises you from the dead and you die, which he could if he wants to because he's sovereign, which means he's free to do whatever he wants in accordance with his character and his purposes. But that's the thing. Is it in, a, in accordance with his character and purposes? And it still is, we are told, that it has been pointed once for man to die, then comes the judgment. That even Jesus himself did not escape the reality of death. 
The powerful thing, though, about Jesus is that he conquered it so that death takes on a new meaning for the believer. It's the means by which we are ushered into even greater life. But the expectation that God's desire, real faith, means that you will always be healed of every illness and every sickness. I have seen God heal, but I have seen him not heal. The question is, is is it bringing God glory? And what is the key thing that brings God glory? People putting their trust in his son as their savior. And sometimes the greatest trust placed in Jesus is due to the affliction that is not removed. And I think that that is an important reality for us to keep our heads around. The purpose of Lazarus being raised from the dead was to testify to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and holds within his hands, in his very personhood, the power of life and of death, as Farrar says. People just seem to sit up that were dead when they were in the presence of Jesus because it is his nature to bring about resurrection. And I think that this is an important thing for us to keep our heads around as we experience suffering, that Jesus is victor. We can trust him with our lives, regardless of what we're experiencing. He's a loving friend. Secondly, he's our patient teacher. Notice, then after he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. At the power of this passage here, we see Jesus, he who is the resurrection and the life, is also not only the loving friend, but he is definitely the patient teacher. What is one of the things that the disciples are questioning is they are worried about Jesus' safety. They think their lifeline to God is dependent upon his remaining as he is, physically present with them, that he might fulfill the office of Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And so the best thing for you to do, rabbi, good teacher, is to stay hidden. When Jesus is teaching us one of the great principles of the Christian life, that what I tell you in private, you are to declare from the rooftops. That Jesus says, I am sending you out into the world to wolves. Understand this, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And notice that he is giving them an illustration of what it means to be dependent upon the Father's will. And he says, just as you have seen me trust in my Father, essentially trust in me that same way. You believe in God, believe also in me. He goes on to say in John 14. He says, the light, notice, the light is not something that originates within them. Cam did a wonderful job in his message of reminding us of that because one of the thoughts, and the, it's not a new thought, it's a very ancient thought that's creeping back into the church in very, very powerful ways. Uh, and it's, it's old thought, it's what we call Gnosticism, it's even what we call Neoplatonism, which is basically the belief that God did not create everything out of nothing, God created everything out of himself. And that because God created everything out of himself, God is essentially infused into everything that is. And so we don't have God the creator and then fall, what we have is Everyone at one point, even though it was unconscious, was one with God. Creation created, a fall happened, and it, what it was is not a fall, but it's disunion from God, and that the goal of human existence is to discover the light within you so that you can actually have reunion with God and experience enlightenment. That kind of thought is actually being infused into, into evangelical circles all over the place right now. 
And it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the basic teachings of the church and even of the scriptures that God created everything out of nothing, not out of himself, and that the light of the world, yes, Jesus says you are the light of the world, but it is only because he is the light of the world we are secondary lights. We reflect his light. Salvation is not something that happens within us through self-discovery. Salvation is something that happened outside of us in human history for us and comes to work within us as we trust in the living Christ who is not to be confused with our own egos. And so the power of this, and, and just to, to note that within the Gnostic Gospels, if, in fact, it's fascinating that Thomas is, is mentioned here, and I, I wanna talk about Thomas in just a second, but in the Gospel of Thomas, which is a false gospel that was written hundreds of years after Jesus walked on the earth, there is that famous line from it, within a man of light, there is light, and he lights the whole world. When he does not shine, there is darkness. Essentially, that is the, essence of Gnostic thought. The light is already within you, and you just have to learn how to discover that, that reality that you are God. But the Thomas of the scriptures never seems to have much awareness of the deeper spiritual truths. In fact, I would argue that the Thomas of the scripture seems to be almost a pure naturalist who totally loves Jesus and trusts in him, but never seems to get the picture because he always takes Jesus absolutely literally. He's almost he almost has like that, uh, there's, there's this, this component of Thomas, like the moment Jesus says something, Thomas takes it literally and is quick to actually state it. Like he, he's like, the, he's your classic, he's like, he's like the classic intellect that's like too analytical for his own good. And it, look what it says, it says, uh, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. That word recover is actually the Greek word. If he's only fallen asleep, he will be saved. The exact same word that we're used for spiritual realities was a common secular phrase that spoke of healing. And so here we see that even the idea of salvation for us should have a much more holistic picture. It's not purely resurrection in the future, but resurrection life that brings transformation to the life now, today. It's the classic Major Ian Thomas. We should be enjoying heaven on the way to heaven, the reality of Christ as we go to meet Christ face to face. But notice, they're not getting it though, and they mean it in a very secular way. If he's only if he's sleeping, that's perfect. Isn't that what you do? My wife is homesick right now after we just got home from our... 22 year anniversary this week. And you know, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. All I know is that the selfie I took on the day of our anniversary proved that he is not keeping me young, that I still seem to be stinking dying. And I think it's primarily because of being a pastor because my beard was nice and brown just less than 10 years ago. And I was like, I'm an old man, you can't post that. She's like, you look great. I'm like, I look like an old man. <laughs> As I'm preparing to teach her on resurrection, I'm like, Lord, where's the resurrection life now? I prayed for healing, he didn't answer. He doesn't heal. <laughs> Isn't it funny, if you turn it into something that he does for you personally, disconnected from him, you can make it about anything, can't you? The issue here, I love this. He says, listen, if he's falling asleep, he will recover. Darce got sick at the end of our trip and she's, she's home sleeping because that's how we get well when we're sick, right? But Jesus had spoken of his death and they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. 
Do the disciples believe? Yeah, they do. This shows us an, a, a component of faith, that faith is not finished. So we don't need the gospel once. We need the resurrection life of Christ, the presence, the gospel preached to ourselves as well as to the world every single day because it is through entering into his death that we experience. That's what Paul meant by, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God that you present yourselves as living sacrifices. It's a daily surrender. It's a daily repetition of the yes of love to the life of Christ now. And what he's calling his disciples to is a, is a not necessarily a bigger faith, but a deeper understanding of the object of their faith, which is Christ. We always praise people for their faith, the size of their faith. It's Jesus that makes the faith matter. That's why he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell the mountain to jump into the ocean because it's not the faith, it's the one in whom we placed our faith. Faith is a disposition toward an object that allows that object to do something for you. Faith is a disposition toward God that allows God to be God in and through our lives. The more we understand our God, have a right understanding of who Jesus is according to his scriptures, which is why we need to be men and women of the word illuminated by the spirit, a strong balance of word and spirit. We need the parameters of the scriptures to keep us from creating a theology made in our own image because that's what the church is doing a lot of today. A Jesus in its own image. A Jesus that reflects the day in which we live. A Jesus, a permissive Jesus. A gentle Jesus that isn't bothered by sin. A gentle Jesus that, that ultimately doesn't even need people to trust in him. But that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. Jesus hates sin because he loves people. And he came to deal with sin once and for all, and we need to take it seriously. And the moment we eradicate the necessity of atonement and the cross, we actually lose resurrection. We lose the gospel, and we lose relationship with Christ because the very thing that we are to put faith in is his ability to take care of business for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. And so we have here, he says, he says listen, this has happened for that you, what? Might grow in your trust in me that we're never, we're never done, if you will. It's what, it's what Luther meant when he said, he who is a Christian is no Christian. It, it, it's a classic Luther, who I am convinced was truly the first punk rock person ever. He was basically challenging our idea that faith is somehow stationary, that the Christian life is movement, continual following Jesus into the darkness of the world and trusting him as the light to lead us but we don't actually know where he's going. This is what he's calling them to. Quit worrying about me, just follow me, and you'll see. And so Thomas called the twin, and here we see that this Thomas in the scripture is very different than the Thomas of the Gnostic Gospels. He says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. Notice the naturalism, the despair in that statement. Why even live if our friends are dead? I just rather die with them. He's not understanding the essence of the gospel. He's acting all brave, but in reality, there's a sort of fatalistic component here. Some believe that Thomas is actually being extremely, uh, actually being an emblem of what true faith is, is a willingness to lay down our lives for the good of others. But based upon the other interactions that we see with Thomas, which in John 14, when Jesus says that, he's, that, that where he's going, they know, uh, and that he will come again for them. And Thomas is the one that goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't understand the way. And Jesus had to explain to him again. We see Thomas is the one who 
is, is called Doubting Thomas for a reason when he says, I will not believe that Jesus has actually risen from the dead unless I what? See him with my eyes and touch him with my hands. In other words, there's a naturalistic component, an inability to see into the spiritual reality behind things. And Jesus, in his gentleness, calls the disciples to just simply trust him. Notice, he doesn't even have a response. Jesus doesn't even really respond. It's, it's, it, now we're told here, as we move into the wounded healer, now when Jesus came, <laughs> like, it's not even worth responding to Thomas's statement, well, whatever, let's just go, you're so sacrificial. <laughs> I kind of, I sort of love this, like, you know, I don't even have the energy to explain that to you. That's what I think he meant when he said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. I think what he actually meant is, I have many more things to say to you, but I cannot bear explaining it to you again. <laughs> and he says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And here you have not only Jesus's hurtful timing, from the, from the perspective of those that were experiencing the loss, but you also have the painful realization that he was less than two miles away. Isn't that troubling from our side? I mean, I live a mile and a half from the church. I can walk here in 15 minutes. That's troubling. And so Jesus, once again, something else is at work here. And when, Mar when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house Martha said to Jesus, notice, it's, it's fascinating that Mary in Luke's gospel is the one who throws herself at the feet of Jesus, hanging on every word, washes his feet with her, uh, with her, with her or excuse me, pours the perfume upon his feet and, and washes his feet with her hair, anointing him, as, it's, as we're told, for baptism. And yet here, Mary is the one whose despair has frozen her, and Martha is actively pursuing the Lord. This is a powerful picture that shows us that all people are mixture. If you want to turn Mary into the hero and Martha into the villain, it's problematic. And I love that the Gospels are wise enough to show us that everybody's mixture. And it takes the whole family to be a picture of what the Christian really is anyway, as you can see later in, in chapter 12. But I love this. Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What a powerful picture that, uh, that you have here of this, this balanced willingness to confess grief. I don't understand why this has happened. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died, combined with strong faith, but... I know that you're able. What is, he, what is she going to say? I know, even now I know, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And here Jesus is trying, this, I think the writer, the Gospel of John, John is trying to teach us a significant lesson about the resurrection life of Christ that is not just simply the future hope that we will beat death but it's the possibility of experiencing resurrection life now, for we are told that we were dead in our sin and trespasses, and that there is no salvation apart from being born again, regenerated. As we say yes to God's yes declared over us in Jesus, he puts his life within us, that without the spirit of God within us, we remain dead and blind and in darkness. And Jesus is teaching something very important through the actual 
resuscitation of Lazarus' dead body, he is giving a, we are given a picture of the actual resurrection life that every man, woman, and child experiences when they put this, their simple trust in the one who is that resurrection and life. And notice what, he's, what, what we have here. It says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So yes, there is a future hope and a bodily resurrection. And if you guys want to have a deeper understanding of what the scripture says about bodily resurrection, just look at 1 Corinthians 15. For that our resurrected bodies uh, are, not, are not as as exactly the same as what we're experiencing now. We're not talking about resuscitation. We're talking about resurrection. Lazarus is really a resuscitation of being brought to life, back to life in the body that he had. Jesus's resurrection is something wholly different. He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't easily identified by his disciples until he revealed himself to them. He was physical, and yet at the same time, he could walk through walls. There is this combination of the, this merging of of the created order as we understand it and the spiritual order in a unique way. And this is why I believe when it says there's a new heavens and a new earth, that the combination of the two things, as Tim likes to say, God recreating out of the, out of the, the elements of what we're experiencing now. It's like a great recycling project, but it does create something utterly new. And Paul even says this, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep, that is those who have died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the belief, the strong conviction that this life is not all there is and that death is not the end of the story but merely the beginning. And it says that it has been appointed once for one to die and then comes the judgment that there will be a resurrection for those that have trusted in Jesus, a resurrection unto life and those who have rejected the gospel, willing rejection said yet, what I call the impossible possibility, saying, saying no to God's yes. It says that there is a resurrection unto a second death. And Jesus is the resurrection in the life. And this is important, but it is also a reality for us now because the promise of spiritual life now and forever is a key aspect of what the Christian life is about. Christian existence in Christ is life before death, but Christian existence is also life after death. And then he says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And what I think is powerful about this is she may not understand what he is saying but she implicitly trusts in the one who says it. This is an important aspect of even what it means to put our faith in Christ. Think about it. When you first became a believer, how much did you understand? And as you've been a believer, if you've been a believer as I have for any length of time, I'm coming up on 20 years, it's amazing how much I still don't understand. But the more I understand, the more I implicitly trust the one who I often don't understand. There's a lot that I don't get, and there's a lot that I find so troubling and such enigma in my life, and when I view the world around me, 
but the thing that I trusted, this is why I think it's foolishness for those that try to just throw away 2,000 years of orthodoxy and say, I don't believe this doctrine anymore, and I don't believe this doctrine. They don't understand the doctrine, and so instead of just putting their trust that they can trust that Jesus is consistent with the one who revealed himself to us, who saved us by his grace and his mercy, we can trust the future of existence with him as well. Whether I, and why would I even claim to even, I, when I read people trying to explain eternity, it just makes me mad. How can you talk about that which we have no comprehension of? Why would you even assume that time functions the same? All I trust is that Jesus is Lord of time, he is Lord of creation, and that he has the final say. He holds the keys to life and death. And there seems to be a certain urgency in the scripture that says that there's a real judgment coming. And that judgment has eternal consequences. And that we are to proclaim the gospel of grace until we are told the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then there will be a day when the last one has come. But I believe that the church needs to regain that apostolic evangelistic impulse that actually cares about where people are headed and believes that Jesus is here to raise the dead through the witness of the church. And this is why we need to understand our gentle Savior. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Notice here, Martha goes back to Mary and says, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Mary is snapped out of that despair, out of that troubling moment in which she is, uh, she is, she has been frozen in her grief, but the invitation of grace, he is calling for you. He doesn't wait for us to repent. Kindness leads us to repentance, we're told in the scripture. Jesus isn't beat her up, he just sends Martha, go tell Mary to come to me. And she rises, Quickly. And I've seen this. I've seen those two sides of that when people are in deep despair. That there can be those that become so internally focused that they lose sight of the bigger picture. And then there are those where Jesus, they allow the healing touch of the wounded Savior who doesn't remove our suffering but promises to be with us in the midst of it that can in, in turn take the suffering, the pain, the grief that we experience and actually utilize it for greater witness to his kingdom. And the gracious inviting word of Jesus has the power to conquer death and the paralysis of depression and despair. And I would just ask that, has Jesus brought resurrection life? Has he brought a conquering word over death to the despair or the depression or the loneliness that you might be experiencing? Because loneliness actually often feels like everything you touch turns to death. And Jesus has come to remind you that you are not alone, that he is with you, and that he is for you and will never leave you nor forsake you. And I love what, what goes on. She says, when she, uh, I love this, he says, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here is a powerful picture of a woman who is vulnerably exposing her grief 
but putting her trust totally in Jesus, she cast herself at his feet. Notice all the people that came to comfort Mary and Martha over the death of Lazarus have followed her out, and now they are witnessing her interaction with King Jesus. She is unwittingly introducing people to the king just by being in relationship with him and allowing him to actually help her through her grief. So beautiful. And Mary's response to the personal invitation leads others to follow her. And this is something that I think is so important. One of the key ways the world watches the church to see if what we believe is real is how we deal with suffering. This is why the church has always exploded the most intensely when it has come under real, actual persecution. Because when Christians actually continue to live the life of agape love in spite of affliction, that is when the testimony of the church becomes the most beautiful. Uh, That's why I think that often in in, in Western evangelicalism, we've turned the gospel into a means of escaping pain rather than fully embracing it. We embrace the wrong kind of pain. In our attempts to avoid suffering, we create suffering, but if we were willing to enter into the Lord's suffering, suffering for his namesake, what we would actually find is blessing and freedom and real righteousness, because it's his. Notice what she says. She fully believes Jesus is Lord, and she's completely honest about the pain, just like Martha. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her, notice he doesn't answer her. Instead, he does something so powerful. He becomes deeply moved in his spirit, and he's greatly troubled. And he says, where have you laid them? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. What is that a picture of? Because notice the response. Some said, see how he loved him, which is a correct response. But others didn't believe, which is classic. Jesus never seems to bring a neutral response when people are really confronted with him. And they say, could he not? They begin to critique him. Couldn't he not who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? But Jesus here gives us a glimpse into the pathos of God, that God is not as the Greek philosophers referred to him, and unfortunately the church adopted for, for a long time, and many in the church still do, that God is somehow the unmoved mover. No, God is the moved mover. His pathos for human brokenness is deep. Jesus' entrance into the world's predicament and the heavens opening and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased is the Father's pleasure with the Son's full identification with human brokenness. And it wasn't just some sort of fake identification. It says when he saw the people, he had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. When he weeps here, he is heartbroken over what sin brings, which is death. Even though he is the answer to death, he still recognizes that it hurts everybody, including his heart. When you hurt, God hurts with you. This is why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If the church can't weep with those who are weeping, maybe it's the idea that we don't think that God cares and doesn't weep. But what if the pathos of God, you know how people often think that the idea that personal evangelism, calling people to a decision for Christ is somehow emotionally manipulative? I think that's so foolish because Paul says, I do everything that is in me to actually, if there is even the slightest possibility, that just I could leave one, some, 
to Jesus, to a saving knowledge of the gospel. He's like, I will be all things to all people that the gospel may go forth. He's like, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And there's this deep pathos. You know what I believe is at work? I believe Paul is a spirit-filled man, and when he speaks like that, what is happening is that the spirit's anguish over the lostness of humanity is actually being being shared through him. This is why I think it's absolute nonsense that we would say that we shouldn't be We shouldn't call people to a decision for Jesus because you're manipulating them. Listen, nobody comes to Jesus unless the Spirit draws them, and the Spirit draws them by filling you with God's heart for a lost world. And if you don't care about the lost, maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with your relationship with Jesus. Because the longer I walk with him, the more I can't even bear at times when I see how broken our city is how hurting people are, and I'm even more horrified at my own callousness and lack of concern for their eternal destiny. Even if we were to say, I don't believe in the eternal destiny, which is really quite essential, actually, but let's just say that. How can we ignore the fact that they are experiencing hell on earth right now? Do we believe that the gospel actually brings transforming work? And if the Holy Spirit has so filled our hearts, would it not create within us God's emotion toward his world? Isn't that what we should pray for? God, give me your heart and break my heart for what breaks yours. Jesus gives us a glimpse into the pathos of God. God is moved by brokenness. And this is why Jesus wept. Which brings me to the close. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And here we see him as our commanding king. Yes, he is the gentle savior. And he is willing to enter into the brokenness of our predicament and bring salvation, healing. But he is also the commanding king who is engaged and has been engaged in a real spiritual war. And it says, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Now look at the way that that Jesus becomes transformed. He is just as moved by the brokenness and the reality of death, but now there is a new authority that comes. He has dealt with Mary and Martha and even his own disciples with with patience and gentleness, but now he is confronting the great enemy, which is death itself, and even the dominions of darkness behind that death. And it says, he said, take the stone away. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And I think that this is such a powerful picture, the reality of sin. And we're told, what are we leaving? Are we, are, we, are we bringing the fragrance of Christ to the world? That Jesus has the ability to overcome sin and death, for the wages of sin is death. And here we have this, this picture of human sin. When, when Martha says he's, he stinks, in the King James is, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> which I, I've always found that so, uh, just, I don't know why. It's like, that makes me laugh, and showbread in the, new King, in the King James is shoebread, and I don't know why I find that funny too. But, it's just, but this is one of those moments where, in all seriousness, what, we're, what we have is a picture of human sin, and what, this, what the gospel writer is telling us is that Jesus can handle it. Look at this. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's what he says to her. This is the message that was sent back to you in the beginning. This is why I waited, because I'm about to reveal the glory of God, which is God's revelation of his love for a broken world 
God's ability to conquer death and sin through bringing himself, his son, into this world. He is going to reveal his glory by my presence here. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me and I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out and hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus' response to Mary's doubt Jesus brings the gentle but firm reminder to Martha of his response to their initial request. And this is the response, is that the purpose of the resuscitation, rising, raising Lazarus from the dead, is to give us A, a picture of the gospel and to bring forth a greater belief and confidence and salvation to, a, to a, a world of unbelief. Because what we are told what happened immediately after this incident is that many of those who were there that day put their faith in him. It was for the purpose of witness. And one of the things that I love so much about this is that what it felt at first like bad timing was really a means of revealing the, the father is glorified first and foremost by simple trust in his son. But I think even more powerfully is the commanding king, the immovable object that is death meets an irresistible force. Death meets Christ and Christ conquers. This is why Paul says that the work of the cross, O oh death, where is your sting? Death shall no longer have dominion over us because Christ Jesus rose from the dead. It's the reason the gospel spread across the known earth so rapidly is because there was a message that the church had and it was the same message. Jesus Christ is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He lived the perfect sinless life that no human could live, that he died on the cross as a common criminal, but in doing so, there was a spiritual supernatural reality occurring in which that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the God-man was actually taking into himself human sin and brokenness removing the barrier between God and man. It's not reunion, it's redemption which brings about reunion. It's reconciliation, it's propitiation. Jesus took our guilt into himself. He actually took your sins. And believe me, I know if you're like me, there are so many things in your life that you think there is no way that God could forgive me for that. There's so much shame that we carry through our lives and Jesus conquered all of it. All of that leads to death. The gospel leads to freedom. He frees us from the guilt and the shame because there's real forgiveness and there's real hope and it's a commanding reality by which Jesus conquers death and even when on the cross when he says, it is finished, he meant it. Jesus even said in John 5, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is our loving friend. He's our patient teacher. He is our wounded healer. He is our gentle savior and he is our commanding king. And as we allow his witness, his resurrection life to indwell us, we become conduits of that same commanding gospel. And as a community of faith, we become like the people around Lazarus who help people come into life, begin to remove the bandages 
that are wrapped around our dead bodies, the, the, the old remnants of the sin that, that afflicted us, and, and we, we help each other and push each other toward a greater reality of Jesus's, Jesus's beauty. It's almost as if Lazarus becomes the picture of a new believer who's, who comes into the community of faith and, and basically is cleaned by the, by the love and the care and the, and the concern of the community who have all built their lives around this central figure, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And Lord, I know that there are people here who are struggling. They are feeling the weight of their own brokenness. Maybe they are feeling even the realities of despair, maybe heartbreak, maybe the loss of a loved one, maybe the challenge of difficult news, maybe mental illness. Lord, the world around us, we are told that all of creation groans for its redemption. And that Jesus, you have called us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And that is that as we yield to you, your spirit actually commands the dead to rise through our lives and through the witness of our community together. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come into this place in such power that people cannot come into this building when we gather around your word and around your person without experiencing your saving, healing, commanding presence. Jesus, I pray that as the world looks to see if this Jesus is worth believing in, that we as a community would represent what the life that is supernaturally infused with your life looks like. Naturally supernatural, supernaturally natural. Acting in those little acts of love that witness to your goodness. And Lord, our salvation is based not upon what we have done for you, but what you have done for us. For Lazarus could not have made a decision for you, he was dead. He becomes a picture of your decision to seek and save that which is lost, to bring life to that which is dead. You said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. But you also said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. May we lift you up, Jesus, and may many come to know that you are the living Christ and that you love us with an everlasting love. Give us hearts that care for the broken around us, Lord, may we reflect your compassion, your mercy, your grace, your truth. May we be representations of your resurrection life as we yield to you. And so we declare, as the scripture says, whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. We declare together as a church, Jesus is Lord. Hey friends, this is Josh from Door of Hope. We're in a period of expanding our efforts as a church to reach our city with the gospel which includes having moved into our new building, as well as pursuing church planting. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help us as we seek to expand our ministry in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your support and prayer. To donate financially to Door of Hope, just head to doorofhopepdx.org and select Generosity and Give Online. Thanks again for listening.